Section thirty eight of the Fair Maid of Perth or Saint Valentine's Day. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fair Maid of Perth or Saint Valentine's Day by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter thirty three. The hour is nigh, now hearts beat high. Each sword is sharpened well, and who dares die, who stoops to fly, tomorrow's light shall tell. Sir Edwald. We are now to recall to our reader's recollection that Simon Glover and his fair daughter had been hurried from the residence without having time to announce to Henry Smith either their departure or the alarming cause of it. When, therefore, the lover appeared in Curfew Street on the morning of their flight, instead of the hearty welcome of the honest burgher and the april reception half joy half censure which he had been promised on the part of his lovely daughter he received only the astounding intelligence that her father and she had set off early on the summons of a stranger who had kept himself carefully muffled from observation to this dorothy whose talents for forestalling evil and communicating her views of it are known to the reader chose to add that she had no doubt her master and young mistress were bound for the highlands to avoid a visit which had been made since their departure by two or three apparitors who in the name of a commission appointed by the king had searched the house put seals upon such places as were supposed to contain papers and left citations for father and daughter to appear before the covert of commission on a day certain under pain of outlawry all these alarming particulars dorothy took care to state in the gloomiest colours and the only consolation which she afforded the alarmed lover was that her master had charged her to tell him to reside quietly at perth and that he should soon hear news of them this checked the smith's first resolve which was to follow them instantly to the highlands and partake the fate which they might encounter but when he recollected his repeated feuds with divers of the clan Cahuil, and particularly his personal quarrel with Kanachar, who was now raised to be a high chief, he could not but think, on reflection, that his intrusion of their place of retirement was more likely to disturb the safety which they might otherwise enjoy than be of any service to them he was well acquainted with simon's habitual intimacy with the chief of the clan quahill and justly augured that the glover would obtain protection which his own arrival might be likely to disturb while his personal prowess could little avail him in a quarrel with a whole tribe of vindictive mountaineers at the same time his heart throbbed with indignation when a thought of catherine being within the absolute power of young conacher whose rivalry he could not doubt and who had now so many means of urging his suit what if the young chief should make the safety of their father depend on the favour of the daughter 
he distrusted not catherine's affections but then her mode of thinking was so disinterested and her attachment to her father so tender that if the love she bore her suitor was weighted against his security perhaps his life it was matter of deep and awful doubt whether it might not be found laid in the balance tormented by thoughts on which we need not dwell he resolved nevertheless to remain at home stifle his anxiety as he might and wake the promised intelligence from the old man it came but it did not relieve his concern sir patrick charteris had not forgotten his promise to communicate to the smith and the plans of the fugitives but amid the bustle occasioned by the movement of troops he could not himself convey the intelligence he therefore entrusted to his agent kit henshaw the task of making it known but this worthy person as the reader knows was in the interest of ramorny whose business it was to conceal from every one but especially from a lover so active and daring as henry the real place of catherine's residence henshaw therefore announced to the anxious smith that his friend the glover was secure in the highlands and though he affected to be more reserved on the subject of catherine he said little to contradict the belief that she as well as simon shared the protection of the clan Kilhill, but he reiterated in the name of sir patrick assurances that father and daughter were both well and that henry would best consult his own interest and their safety by remaining quiet and awaiting the course of events with an agonized heart therefore henry gow determined to remain quiet till he had more certain intelligence and employed himself in finishing a shirt of mail which he intended should be the best tempered and the most finely polished that his skilful hands had ever executed this exercise of his craft pleased him better than any other occupation which could have adopted and served as an apology for secluding himself in his workshop and shunning society where the ideal reports which were daily circulated served only to perplex and disturb him he resolved his trust in the warm regard of simon the faith of his daughter and the friendship of the provost who having so highly commended his valour in the combat with bonthron would never he thought desert him at his this extremity of his fortune time however passed on day by day and it was not till palm sunday was near approaching that sir patrick charitas having entered the city to make some arrangements for the ensuing combat bethought himself of making a visit to the smith of the wind he entered his workshop with an air of sympathy unusual to him which made henry instantly awkward that he brought bad news the smith caught the alarm and the uplifted hammer was arrested in its descent upon the heated iron while the agitated arm that weighed it strung before as that of a giant became so powerless that it was with difficulty henry was able to place the weapon on the ground instead of dropping it from his hand 
my poor henry said sir patrick i beg you but cold news they are uncertain however if true they are such as a brave man like you should not take too deeply to heart in god's name my lord said henry i trust you bring no evil news of simon glover or his daughter touching themselves said sir patrick no they are safe and well but as to thee henry my tidings are more cold kit henshaw has i think apprised thee that i had endeavoured to provide catherine glover with a safe protection in the house of an honourable lady the duchess of rothsay but she hath declined the charge and catherine hath been sent to her father in the highlands what is worst is to come thou mayest have heard that giltrist macklin is dead and that his son eachin who was known in perth as the apprentice of old simon by the name of Canacher, is now the chief of clan quahill and i heard from one of my domestics that there is a strong rumour among the malhacklins that the young chief seeks the hand of catherine in marriage my domestic learned this as a secret however while in bread dublin country on some arrangements touching the ensuing combat the thing is uncertain but henry it wears a face of likelihood did your lordship's servant see simon glover and his daughter said henry struggling for breath and coughing to conceal from the provost the excess of his agitation he did not send it said sir patrick the highlanders seemed jealous and refused to permit him to speak to the old man and he feared to alarm them by asking to see catherine besides he talks no gaelic nor had his informer much english so there may be some mistake in the matter nevertheless there is such a report and i thought it best it to tell it you but you may be well assured that the wedding cannot go on till the affair of palm sunday be over and advise you to take no step till we learn the circumstances of the matter for certainty is most desirable even when it is painful go you to the council house he added after a pause to speak about the preparations for the lists in the north inch you will be welcome there no my good lord well smith i judge by your brief answer that you are discomposed with this matter but after all women are weathercocks that is the truth aunt solomon and others have proved it before and so sir patrick charitus retired fully convinced he had discharged the office of a comforter in the most satisfactory matter with very different impressions did the unfortunate lover regard the tidings and listen to the consoling commentary the provost he said bitterly to himself is an excellent man mary he holds his knighthood so high that if he speaks nonsense or men must hold its sense as he must praise dead ale if it be handed to him in his lordship's silver flacon how would all this sound in another situation suppose i were rolling down the steep descent 
of the Carichi Du, and before I came to the edge of the rock comes my lord provost, and cries, Henry, there is a deep precipice, and I grieve to say you are in fair way of rolling over it. Be not downcast, for heaven may send a stone or a bush to stop your progress. However, I thought it would be comfort to you to know the worst which you will be presently aware of. I do not know how many hundred feet the precipice sounds, but you may form a judgment when you are at the bottom, for certainty is certainty. And hark ye, when come you to take a game at bowls? And this gossip is to serve instead of any friendly attempt to save the poor white's neck. When I think of this, I could go mad, seize my hammer, and break and destroy all around me. But I will be calm, and if this highland kite, who calls himself a falcon, should stoop at my turtle-dove, he shall know whether a burgess of Perth can draw a bow or not. It was now the Thursday before the fated Palm Sunday, and the champions on either side were expected to arrive the next day, that they might have the interval of Saturday to rest, refresh themselves, and prepare for the combat. Two or three of each of the contending parties were detached to receive directions about the encampment of their little band, and such other instructions as might be necessary to the proper ordering of the field. Henry was not, therefore, surprised at seeing a tall and powerful highlander peering anxiously about the wind in which he lived, in the manner in which the natives of a wild country examine the curiosities of one that is more civilized. The smith's heart rose against the man on account of his country, to which our Perth burgher bore a natural prejudice, and more especially as he observed the individual where the played peculiar to the clan Quahel. The sprig of oak leaves worked in silk, intimated also that the individual was one of those personal guards of young Eachin upon whose exertions in the future battle so much reliance was placed by those of their clan. Having observed so much, Henry withdrew into his smithy, for the sight of a man raised his passion, and, knowing that the Highlander came plated to a solemn combat, and could not be the subject of any inferior quarrel, he was resolved at last to avoid friendly intercourse with him. In a few minutes, however, the door of the smithy flew open, and flattering in his tartans, which greatly magnified his actual size, the gale entered with the haughty step of a man conscious of the personal dignity superior to anything which he is likely to meet with. He stood looking around him, and seemed to expect to be received with courtesy, and regarded with wonder but Henry had no sort of inclination to indulge his vanity and keep hammering away at a breastplate which was lying upon his anvil, as if he were not aware of his visitor's presence. "'You are Glecochrome, the bandy-legged smith,' said the Highlander. "'Those that wish to be crook-backed call me so,' answered Henry. "'No offence meant,' 
said the Highlander, but her own self comes to buy an armor. Her own self bears shanks may trot hence with her, answered Henry. I have none to sell. If it was not within two days of Palm Sunday, herself would make ye sing another song, retorted the gale. And being the day it is, said Henry, with the same contemptuous indifference, I pray you to stand out of my light. You are an uncivil person, but her own self is Fernand Ord too, and she knows the smith is fiery when the iron is hot. If her nainsail be hammer man herself, her nainsail may make her nain harness, replied Henry. And so her nainsail would, I never fash you for the matter. But it is said, Gaucrom, that you sing and whistle tunes over the swords and harnesses that you work, that have power to make the blades cut steel links as they were paper, and the plate and mail turn back steel lances as they were bottle prints. They tell your ignorance and nonsense that a Christian men refuse to believe said henry i whistle at my work whatever it comes uppermost like an honest craftsman and commonly it is the highlandman's hone for home and stairs my hammer goes naturally to that tune friend it is but idle to spur a horse when its legs are ham shackled said the highlander hotly her own self cannot fight even now, and there is little gallantry in taunting her thus. By nails and hammer, you are right there, said the smith, altering his tone. But speak out at once, friend. What is it thou wouldst have me? I am in no humor for dallying. I harbork for her chief, Eachin Macklin, said the Highlander. You are a hammer man, you say? Are you a judge of this? said our smith, producing from a chest the mail shirt on which he had been lately employed. The gale handled it with a degree of admiration which it had something of envy in it. He looked curiously at every part of its texture, and at length declared it was the very best piece of armor that he had ever seen. A hundred cows and bullocks and a good trip to sheep would be cheap an offer, said the Highlandman by way of tentative. But her nainsail would never bid thee less come by them how she can. It is a fair proffer, replied Henry, but gold nor gear will never buy that harness. I want to try my own sword on my own armor, and I will not give that mail coat to any one but who will face me for the best of three blows and a thrust in a fair field, and it is your chiefs upon these terms. Hot, prot, man, take a drink and go to bed, said the Highlander in a great scorn. Are you mad? Think ye of the captain of the clan Quahel? 
will be brawling and battling with a bit perth burgess body like you Wilsman and Hargan. Her nainsel would do ye mere credit than ever belong to your kin. She will fight you for the fair harness herself. She must first show that she is my match, said Henry with a grim smile. How? I one of each and Macklin's light touch and not your match. You may try me, if you will. You say you are a Fernan Ord. Do you know how to cast a sledgehammer? I truly ask the eagle if he can fly a faragon. But before you strive with me, you must first try a cast with one of my light touch. Here, Dunter, stand forth for the honor of Perth. And now, Highland men, there stands a row of hammers. Choose which you will, and let us to the garden. The Highlander, whose name was Norman Nan Ord, or Norman of the Hammer, showed his title to the epithet by selecting the largest hammer of the set, at which Henry smiled. Dunter, the stout journeyman of the smith, made what was called a prodigious cast, but the Highlander, making a desperate effort, threw beyond it two or three feet, and looked with an air of triumph to Henry, who again smiled in reply. "'Will you mend that?' said the gale, offering our smith the hammer. "'Not with that child's toy,' said Henry, "'which has scarce way to fly against the wind. Janikin, fetch me Samson, or one of you help the boy, for Samson is somewhat ponderous.' The hammer, now produced, was half as heavy again as that which the Highlander had selected as one of unusual weight. Norman stood astonished, but he was still more so when Henry, taking his position, swung the ponderous implement far behind his right haunch joint, and dismissed it from his hand as if it had flown from a warlike engine. The air groaned and whistled as the mass flew through it. Down at length it came, and the iron head sunk a foot into the earth, a full yard beyond Castanorman. The Highlander, defeated and mortified, went to the spot where the weapon lay, lifted it, poised it in his hand with great wonder, and examined it closely, as if he expected to discover more in it than a common hammer. He at length returned it to the owner with a melancholy smile, shrugging his shoulders and shaking his head as the smith asked him whether he would not mend his cast. "'Norman has lost too much at the sport already,' he replied. "'She has lost her own name of the hammerer, but does her own self, the gow chrome, work at the anvil with that horse's load of iron?' "'You shall see, brother,' said Henry, leading the way to the smithy. Dunter, he said, rax me that bar from the furnace, and uplifting Samson, as he called the monstrous hammer, he plied the metal with a hundred strokes from right to left, now with the right hand, now with the left, now with both, with so much strength at once and dexterity, that he worked off a small but beautifully 
proportioned horseshoe and half the time that an ordinary smith would have taken for the same purpose using a more manageable implement oy, oy, said the highlander and what for would you be fighting with our young chief who is far above your standard though you were the best smith ever wrought with wind and fire hark you said henry you seem a good fellow and i'll tell you the truth your master has wronged me and give him his this harness freely for the chance of fighting him myself nay if he hath wronged you he must meet you said the life guardsman to do a man wrong takes the eagle's feather out of a chief's bonnet and were in the first in the highlands and to be sir so is eachin he must fight the man he has wronged or else a rose falls from his chaplet will you move him to this said henry after the fight on sunday oh a nine-cell would do her best if the hawks have not got nine-cell's bones to pick for you must know brother that clan chatton's claws pierce rather than deep the armour is your chief's on that condition said henry but i will disgrace him before king and court if he does not pay me the price dialafir dialafir i will bring him into the barons myself said norman assuredly you will do me a pleasure replied henry and that you may remember your promise i bestow on you this dirk look if you hold it truly and can strike between the male hood and the collar of your enemy the surgeon will be needless the highlander was lavish in his expressions of gratitude and took his leave i have given him the best male harness i ever wrought said the smith to himself rather repenting his liberality for the poor chance that he will bring his chief into a fair field with me and then let catherine be his who can win her fairly but much i dread the youth will have some evasion unless he have such luck on palm sunday as may induce him to try another combat that is some hope however for i have often ere now seen a raw young fellow shoot up after his first fight from a dwarf into a giant queller thus with a little hope but with the most determined resolution henry smith awaited the time that should be he decide his fate what made him augur the worst was the silence both of the glover and of his daughter they are ashamed he said to confess the truth to me and therefore they are silent upon the friday at noon the two bands of thirty men each representing the contending clans arrived at the several points where they were to halt for refreshments the clan quahill was entertained hospitably at the rich abbey of scorn while the provost regaled their rivals at his castle of kinfons the utmost care being taken to treat both parties with the most punctilious attention 
and to afford neither an opportunity of complaining of partiality all points of etiquette were in the meanwhile discussed and settled by the lord high constable earl and the young earl of crawford the former acting on the part of the clan chatton and the later partrancing the clan quahill messengers were passing continually from one earl to the other and they held more than six meetings within thirty hours before the ceremonial of the field could be exactly arranged meanwhile in case of revival of ancient quarrel many seeds of which existed betwixt the burghers and their mountain neighbours a proclamation commanded the citizens not to approach within half a mile of the place where the highlanders were quartered while on their part the intended combatants were prohibited from approaching perth without special license troops were stationed to enforce this order who did their charge so scrupulously as to prevent simon glover himself burgess and citizen of perth from approaching the town because he owned having come thither at the same time with the champions of each and macklin and were a played around him of their check or pattern this interruption prevented simon from seeking out henry wind and possessing him with a true knowledge of all that had happened since their separation which intercourse had it taken place must have materially altered the catastrophe of our narrative on saturday afternoon another arrival took place which interested the city almost as much as the preparations for the expected combat this was the approach of the earl of douglas who rode through the town with a troop of only thirty horse but all of whom were knights and gentlemen of the first consequence men's eyes followed this dreadful peer as they pursue the flight of an eagle through the clouds unable to ken the course of the bird of jove yet silent attentive and as earnest in observing him as if they could guess the object for which he sweeps through the firmament he rode slowly through the city and passed out at the northern gate he next alighted at the dominican convert and desired to see the duke of albany the earl was introduced instantly and received by the duke with a manner which was meant to be graceful and conciliatory but which could not conceal both art and inquietude. when the first greetings were over the earl said with great gravity i bring you melancholy news your grace's royal nephew the duke of rothsay is no more and i hear faith hath perished by some foul practices practices said the duke in confusion what practices who dared practice on their hair of the scottish throne tis not for me to state how these doubts arise said douglas but men say that eagle was killed with an arrow fledged from her own wig and the oak trunk rent by a wedge of the same wood earl of douglas said the duke of albany i am no reader of riddles nor am i per perbrounder of them said douglas hotly your grace will find particulars in these papers worthy of 
perusal. I will go for half an hour to the cloister garden, and then rejoin you. You go not to the king, my lord, said Albany. No, answered Douglas. I trust your grace will agree with me that we should conceal this great family misfortune from our sovereign till the business of to-morrow be decided. I willingly agree, said Albany. If the king heard of this loss, he could not witness the combat, and if he appear not in person, these men are likely to refuse to fight, and the whole work is cast loose. But I pray you sit down, my lord, while I read these melancholy papers respecting poor Rothsay. He passed the papers through his hands, turning over with a hasty glance, and dwelling on others as if their contents had been of the last importance. When he had spent nearly a quarter of an hour in this manner, he raised his eyes, and said very gravely, My lord, in these most melancholy documents, it is yet a comfort to see nothing which can renew the divisions in the king's councils which were settled by the last solemn agreement between your lordship and myself my unhappy nephew was by that agreement to be set aside until time should send him a graver judgment he is now removed by fate and our purpose in that manner is anticipated and rendered unnecessary if your grace reply needed the earl sees nothing to disturb the good understanding which the tranquillity and safety of scotland sh requires should exist between us i am not so ill a friend of my country as to look closely for such i understand you my lord of douglas said albany eagerly you hastily judge that i should be offended with your lordship for exercising your, your powers of lieutenancy and punishing the detestable murderers within my territory of falkland credit me on the contrary i am obliged to your lordship for taking out of my hands the punishment of these wretches as it would have broken my heart even to have looked on them the scottish parliament will inquire doubtless into this sacrilegious deed and happy am i that the avenging sword has been in the hand of a man so important as your lordship. Our communication together, as your lordship must well recollect, bore only concerning a proposed restraint of my unfortunate nephew, until the advance of a year or two had taught him discretion. Such was certainly your grace's purpose, as expressed to me, said the earl. I can safely avouch it why the noble earl we cannot be censured because villains for their own revengeful ends appear to have engrafted a bloody termination on our honest purpose the parliament will judge it after their wisdom said douglas for my part my conscience acquits me and mine assolizes me said the duke with solemnity now my lord touching the custody of the boy james who succeeds to his father's claims of inheritance the king must decide it said douglas impatient of the conference i will consent to his residence anywhere save at stirling down or falkland with that he left the apartment abruptly he is gone muttered the crafty albany and he must be my alley 
yet feels himself disposed to be my mortal foe no matter brothsay sleeps with his fathers james may follow in time and then a crown is the recompense of my perplexities End of chapter thirty three read by elijah fisher